I have some good news for you guys this morning. You're being lied to. Every day, all day long, you're being lied to. You're being lied to by the world, a world that's full of broken systems and broken people telling you what is important, telling you what is valuable, what's worth your time and attention and money. The media we listen to, the music, the movies, the podcasts, so much of it reinforces a worldview that simply isn't true. On top of that, you have the devil, the father of lies, the one who seeks your destruction, or at the very least, if you're born again believer, seeks to distract you and tie you up in dealing with sin He wants to make you ineffective and aimless. And then the worst liar of them all, you met them this morning. You saw them this morning. You saw them when you got out of bed, went in the bathroom, and unfortunately looked in the mirror. Because we're the worst liar of them all, our flesh. We lie to ourselves. We lie about how people perceive us. We lie about how God feels about us. We tell ourselves if we could just have one more thing, then we would be fulfilled. Or if we could just buy that one more thing, everything would be better. If I could make one more change, if I had more time, then I would invest in the things that I'd like to invest in. Or we tell ourselves things are hopeless and they're never going to get better. Or things are never going to change Guys, we are being lied to all the time. And what's insane about all of it is we even believe lies about the liars. The world lies to us, but what what does the world tell us? You can get your morality from our culture. Our culture will tell you what to believe. The devil tells you he doesn't exist. There is no force of evil. I mean, what kind of archaic idea is that? A devil and hell? Come on. In your flesh, what does everyone say? Follow your heart. Follow your desires. See where they take you. Be true to yourself. That's what we're up against. That's what we battle every day, all day long. Stories that are blatantly false. How are we even, how do we have a chance in resisting them and not being changed by all of these false narratives? Because we may be able to fight initially, but as we hear a lie over and over and over and over again, eventually it changes us. The lie starts to take root and change who we are and how we perceive the world, how we perceive others, how we perceive ourselves, and how we perceive God. How do we battle against this? That's what Paul is dealing with here in not only his letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, but in many of his epistles. He is combating the lies that have taken root in the church and more specifically in the, taken root in lives of believers. 
Now in Galatia specifically, in the churches in Galatia, remember Paul's writing to a region. Galatia wasn't a single church. It was a region with many churches. And this letter was meant to be passed around to all of those churches. And in this region, they had specifically allowed a lie to take root. And it was distorting the way they lived out the gospel in a body of believers in their church fellowship. And as we study Paul's words to this church, there's lessons for all of us as we walk through this fallen world constantly inundated by lies that our flesh wants to believe. So how do we resist? How do we resist being conformed to the world when the messaging is so prevalent? And inevitably, when we discover we have allowed lies to take root, how do we address those? So let's take a look at Galatians chapter three, verse one. Now last week, we kind of did a little bit of an introduction, started to get us down this road. But Paul writes, oh, foolish Galatians, would not be super excited about getting a letter where they're like, hey, Dan, you are really dumb. Doesn't make you really want to read the rest of it. But again, this is coming from the heart of a father. This is coming from the heart of Paul who loves the church. Remember, he could have just said, you know what? I'm done with you guys. You're not worth my time or effort. But instead, he writes to them and he's pleading with them. And he says, guys, you're being foolish here. He says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was Clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Who has bewitched you? Paul is asking a a rhetorical question. He already knows the answer to this. And he's acknowledging this reality that someone has come in and told lies about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. The Galatians have been lied to. He doesn't deny that there is a spiritual battle going on. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, I know many of you are familiar with this, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, guys, we don't battle against flesh and blood. Our war is not with hands and fists but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Paul acknowledges, yes, you are in the middle of a spiritual war, And in that spiritual war, although there's Judaizers coming into the church telling lies about the gospel, let me tell you who's behind the scenes. It is the enemy. He's lying to you. He's the one pulling the strings. And so Paul says, I want you to doing, having done all, I want you to stand fast. And in Galatians chapter 3, it's a continuation of this idea, who has bewitched you? 
That literally means who has practiced black magic on you? Who has put you under a spell? The root word for bewitched is where we get the English word fascinated. Who has caught your attention? See, the most powerful lies are the ones we want to believe. Paul acknowledges, yeah, there's an outside force that is lying to you, but you want to believe the lies. You are accountable. You are responsible for buying into this truth because I preached Christ crucified to you. I clearly taught that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. My teaching was clear and concise and you were saved when you responded to the truth of the gospel. But now something else has fascinated you. Something else has appealed to your flesh. A false gospel that you want to believe. Look at verse two. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Understand what Paul's doing here. We know that the superficial lie that the church in the churches in Galatia was buying into was that they had to be circumcised to be saved, right? That's the lie on the surface. But Paul knows that he needs to go a little bit deeper if he's going to deal with the root of the lie. I was telling the men's study a couple weeks ago that when, uh, when I was a kid, my dad would send me in the backyard to pull the weeds. I would start off well. He'd always tell me, if you don't get the root, it's going to come back. So I'd go in the backyard, and I, I would pull weeds, and I'd do it the right way. I'd get around the root, and I'd pull them up. But then it would get kind of hard, and I'd get kind of tired, and it would get kind of hot. So then I would just kind of snap them off, <laughs> and then cover, take some dirt and cover it up a little bit so he wouldn't see. That doesn't deal with the weed, does it? No, it's going to come back, and it's going to come back quick. And a lot of times when we deal with lies in our lives, we just cut it off at the base. We don't allow the Holy Spirit of God to dig down to the root. And that root is, why do we want to believe this lie? What is going on in my life that I want to buy into this, that I want this to be true? And Paul knows that the issue here is bigger than circumcision, The issue here is we want to be in control. The lie that the churches in Galatia believed is you can change on your own. You were saved by the Spirit of God, 
but now you can take back control of your life and now you can change on your own. Now here's the incredible truth that Paul is, even though Paul is correcting the churches in Galatia, here's a wonderful truth. We can change. Paul is saying we can change. We can be different than we are today. We can become more like Jesus. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to have more joy in their life? Who does not want the, that steady confidence that Jesus uh, displayed as he lived in this fallen world? Who doesn't want to speak when we need to speak and be silent when we need to sp- be silent? Who doesn't want to love others unconditionally? We want the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus, Right? We want to be like him, but we don't want to relinquish control. So yes, we can change, but how we change matters. And Paul says, you think you're going to be made perfect if you take back control? That's not what saved you. You got saved when you let go. You got saved when you cried out to Jesus and said, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm cut off from you. It's an amazing thing that we are being conformed to the image of his son. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. But again, the lie is that we can do that work without God. The lie we believe and the lie that we want to believe is we can change on our own terms. Wasn't that the lie in the garden? Wasn't that the lie that the children of Israel wandering in the desert believed? Wasn't that the lie that the kings of Israel believed? Wasn't that the lie that the Pharisees believed? Isn't that the lie that the church wants to believe? If we just have the right systems and the right programs in place, we can see people change. So let's bring in a consultant that can tell us how to grow the church so that we can put the right programs in place, use the right language in a sermon, have the right style of worship music, put out the right mailers, hang up the right signage, bring out the right speakers, and then we're going to see lives changed. We want to be in control. That is our human nature. Our human nature bends away from God. We cannot change on our own. And we cannot change others on our own. It is solely a work of the Spirit of God. He changes us. And how does He change us? Again, the same way we were saved. Paul says it's a work of the the Spirit by the hearing of faith. Now listen here. We talk a lot about faith in church, right? 
We can call it faith. We can call it trust. I like the word trust because a lot of times when people hear faith or belief, they they think it's just mentally acknowledging the existence of something. That's much different than trusting something. But sometimes we take trust and we separate it from this very vital thing called hearing. And Paul says, no, those two things have to go together. It's the hearing of faith. That's the word we miss. We have to hear from God. Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher. And that word preacher is just someone who proclaims, someone who tells the truth about who God is and what he's done. See, the key to our salvation is also the key to our sanctification. The key to our salvation is also the key to how we are changed. We hear with faith. We hear God and we trust him. And the lie says, guys, just try harder. Try harder to be a good person. Wake up in the morning, put 10 goals on your bedpost, and do your best to follow those goals. But the Spirit says, listen more. And trust more. And you will be changed. Hear my voice and trust me and you will be changed. What's the great Shema in the Old Testament? The famous Jewish prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus echoes this as the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel. Let the wise listen and add to their, their learning, and let the, the, the discerning get guidance. Jesus said, he who has ears, what? Let them hear. My sheep, they listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. James says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I like what Martin Luther once said, faith is a hearing affair. Some of us are trying to trust God and we're not listening to him. We're trying to have faith and we want our faith to grow, but there's no room for him to speak. True lasting change brought about by the spirit of the living God starts with making space for him to speak into our lives. And that's a remarkable gift, isn't it? Do you realize that if you have one of these, it's a Bible, by the way, (laughs) you are in a very small minority of Christians throughout human history. It wasn't until the printing press that having the full collection of the Old and New Testament writings together in your hands became possible. The early church, man, if they just had just one manuscript of one of Paul's letters, it was sacred, it was treasured. 
If you study early church history, you would see how important it was to memorize. See, even if you had a letter early in church history, the odds were you didn't know how to read. So you depended on people who were readers to share the truth of God's word and you, you hung on every word. If you wanted to hear teachings from the Old Testament, you had to go to a synagogue where they'd have a collection of the scrolls and people would stand up just like Jesus did and they would open the scrolls and they would read from the scrolls and you would hang on every word. But what do we do with these today? Into the drawer, out of sight, out of mind. Do we hear the voice of God? Or do we waste it? How do we waste it? We fill our ears with so many other voices that there's simply no room for the voice of God. We surround ourselves with human ideas when we have access to the wisdom and knowledge and direction of the infinite, unchanging God who loves us unconditionally. See, we are the most susceptible to lies when we're not hearing the truth. So the enemy is very diligent in making our lives very noisy, getting our minds just completely full of chaos that we don't take the time to be silent and say, Lord, speak. We don't take the time to look for him in his word. One preacher has said, for the Christian life begins and ends with hearing with faith. Look at verse 10 of chapter three. For as many are, as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for they the just shall live by faith yet the law is not of faith but the man who does them shall live by them Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might Come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Be honest, how many of you are tracking with Paul right now? Pastor John is. Are you tracking with Paul? Do you understand where Paul's going? Or are you a little bit lost? Paul, what are you talking about? Cursed is everyone who who hangs on a tree? Understand the way Paul thinks. He has this really unique ability to get out in front of those who oppose him and start, and he articulates their argument before they even make the argument, right? If you've been with us in our study in the book of Romans, he does this all the time. He'll say, what adv- so what advantage is it to be being a Jew? after he had undermined really this idea of works-based salvation. He knows the next question is, so what advantage is it to being a Jew? And he answers that. There's many advantages. One, we were given the oracles of God. He also asks, well, so if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? 
See, he, he thinks about the argument before the argument is even made. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound after he just got done explaining the doctrine of grace by faith? He's just, God has equipped him uniquely to combat these Judaizers. And in this example, the Judaizers may point to Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Paul is saying we are saved by faith alone. It's a work of the spirit. It's not a work of the flesh. We are changed by the spirit of God, not by any work of the flesh. And the Judaizers might say, well, what does Deuteronomy 27, 26 say? Doesn't it say that cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them? Don't we have to follow the law or else we're what? Cursed. But what the Judaizers don't realize is they're making Paul's point for him. Because what does that verse say? Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things. See, the Jewish faith, as with all other world religions, is about works-based righteousness. That somehow what we do can outweigh what, what we, the, the good that we do can somehow outweigh the bad. But Paul points out, yeah, it does say cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. But the key word is all. So that means if any of us have broken one of the commands of God, we are what? Cursed. See, this thinking that somehow our good works will one day outweigh our bad and God will say, well, yeah, you've done enough good. Come on in. Guys, what does that do to God's holiness? What does that say about God? What does it say about us? How good do we think we really are that we can somehow rise to the level of righteousness that a perfectly righteous God deserves? See, this broken thinking was highlighted recently in a video that's since gone viral of a well-known Jewish talk show host and author, Dennis Prager. Any of you know the name Dennis Prager? It was a little disappointed, disappointing because in this conversation, he defended the use of pornography and sexual fantasies, specifically for a, a hypothetical gentleman who was caring for a wife with a terminal disease. And he said, it is not wrong for that man who cares for his wife night and day to indulge himself in pornography. And he says the re- his, his line of thinking was the Lord's ad- admonition concerning adultery is one of a physical act, not of the heart. And this idea that we can commit adultery in our heart is not a Jewish idea, it's a Christian idea because Matthew 5.28 is not a Jewish text. Many of you know that text, that any man who has lusted after a woman has committed adultery in his heart. 
So he, asserted, he, he was asserting that Judaism tends to be behavior-based while Christianity tends to be heart-based. And Dennis Prager is much smarter than I, but I would encourage him to read his Old Testament carefully because God is far more concerned about the heart because it's from the heart that we live. God's more concerned about the heart So here's Paul's point. We are all cursed. I love this analogy. It's not my own. Someone else mentioned it. But they said if you run a red light and that light goes off and you know they took your picture, you know you're getting a ticket in the mail. So at the next green light, you stop in hopes that you can make up for that red light that you ran. That's how silly workspace righteousness is. Let me give you a more sobering example. Can an abusive husband make up for what he's done by taking his wife out to a nice dinner and treat her horribly one day and treat her right the next day? No, but that's workspace righteousness. That somehow the the good that we do outweighs the bad, and that is not true. God is too perfect. He is too holy, and he's too righteous. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover us. And that's what Paul is teaching here. We are all cursed because all of us have broken God's law. Look at verse 15, and he's going to tease us out a little bit more. He says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abram or Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. Do you understand what he's saying there? Okay, so God told Abraham that because of your faith, it'll be accounted to you as what? Righteousness. But when the law came 400 years later, the argument from the Judaizers was, well, the law replaces that. The law didn't exist yet, but 400 years later, when God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, it replaced this idea that you were made righteous by faith. Look how Paul responds to that in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to him the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. The scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, 
kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And Paul's doing some heavy lifting here. He's digging around the roots of this lie, these desires to believe the lie, this desire to be in control of our own lives, the the desire to be saved and then want to take control for ourselves. And he's saying, no, that doesn't work. He says, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And the law was never intended to replace his promise. In fact, it was just a tutor. It was a teacher. It was a teacher. It's like your kindergartner. He goes to school and the kindergarten teacher teaches them for a little while, but when kindergarten class is over, the teacher walks the student out of class and hands the student over to mom and dad. The law handed us over to Jesus. And it is now Jesus who sustains us. It is Jesus who carries us. The law is good in that the law brought us to Christ and helped us realize that we are what? Miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Ashamed. And the law did its work if we looked at God's righteousness and his his holiness and said, I will never obtain that in myself. The law was simply a tutor. And once we are handed off to Jesus, we now get to follow him. He is our righteousness. Look at verse 26. For you are all sons of God. This is, this is just the wonderful way Paul works. He's uprooted the lie that somehow we can change on our own without the spirit of God. He's dug around it. He's removed it. And now what is he replanting? the truth. This is who you are. This is who you are. The world wants to define your identity. The world wants to tell you who you are. Your flesh wants to tell you who you are. But Paul says, no, this is who God says you are. This is your firm foundation. This is your cornerstone. This is your identity for you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Understand what he's saying there. I don't think I got to go too deep into this, right? He's not, and I've heard this verse used by just broken people for broken theology. There's no male and female. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we're unified. We are one body in Christ. And we should have the same mind in us. There's no black, brown, white. We are sons and daughters of the king, every one of us. And that's our commonality. And he says in verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and your heirs according to, there's that word again, the promise. The, pr- the promise. So here's what Paul is replanting. You're children of God. 
because you've put your trust in Jesus. You are clothed in his righteousness. You are unified together as one body in Christ and your heirs according to all God has promised. That's your identity. That's who you are. And that's the antidote to the lies, the truth of God's word. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, how did he combat the lies? By the truth of God's word. I think of Jesus and the gentle teacher that he is. When the rich young ruler came to him and he said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response was, well, you must follow the law. What does the law say? You shall not murder. You shall not lie to honor the Sabbath day, to be obedient to your parents. And what did the rich young ruler say? Oh, I'm not cursed. I have obeyed the law since my youth. He had bought into works-based righteousness. So what did Jesus say to him? Oh, you missed one hoop. Greed. You're a very wealthy man, sell everything you own and come follow me and then you will inherit eternal life. Was Jesus saying that's the path to salvation? If we wanna be saved, do we need to go sell everything? No, he was exposing the lie that this rich young ruler had bought into, that yeah, if you're good enough, you'll inherit eternal life. We will never be good enough. Isn't that what he said as the, these men brought this woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery, they brought her to Jesus trying to trap him. And they said, Moses' law says we should what? Stone her. What do you say? If you're so rich in mercy and forgiveness, what do you say? And Paul says, yes, you're right. That's what the law says. So whichever one of you has no sin, cast the first stone. Again, the lie that they had believed is somehow they were different than that woman they caught in adultery. Somehow they were more righteous than that woman they had caught in the act. But we read that every one of them went away from oldest to youngest. Again, Jesus was just undermining the lies that we believe. So as we move into communion, I want to point out even in communion how we buy into this lie of works-based righteousness, that somehow we can be good enough on our own because that works-based righteousness, not only does it make us self-righteous, but it also, at times, and I know you felt this before, makes us feel like we're cut off from God that we're not worthy of his love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul has just um, walked the church in Corinth through what it means to take communion. And in 1 Corinthians, actually 27, is what I want you to look at. And I want you to think about how you hear these words. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. We're about to take communion. Are you worthy enough to take communion? Boy, that's a scary question, isn't it? Who in here is worthy to take communion? Because the second I think, hey, I'm worthy, now I'm dealing with pride, and now I'm unworthy. What, what in the world is Paul talking about? We shouldn't even be taking communion if we need to take it when we're worthy. Guys, context, context, context. What was Paul dealing with in chapter 11? There were those that were coming into the Lord's house, and they were making communion out to be a buffet line. And they were coming in, and really the wealthy among them would come and eat their fill, drink their fill, and there was nothing left for anybody else. That's what Paul was dealing with. He was dealing with people who were coming into the church and just taking and taking and taking. They weren't concerned about those who were around them, They weren't concerned about what it meant to be a family, to be one body. They weren't concerned about just being there for one another. They were concerned about what can I get out of this. That's what Paul is dealing with. He says, when you take communion in that unworthy manner, you're you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourself. Because if you're not concerned about your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't understand the body of Christ. You don't understand what it means to be unified. You don't understand what it means to live like Christ lived and die to self for the sake of your brother. Because we're all unworthy. That's why we take communion, because we celebrate the one who is worthy and paid for our sins with his body and with his blood. 